Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wonderful to see all your lovely faces here this morning. January the 2nd, 2008, I sent an email to um, Pastor Ernie Vesley looking for a church that actually preaches out of the Bible. I was looking for one, couldn't find one anywhere, and ended up getting in touch with Pastor Frank uh, that weekend. Um, my family came here for the first time. There was 15 people sitting in the hall over on the other side over there. We added 20%, I think, <laughs> roughly, to the church numbers at the time. And, uh, and the whole consideration that I had and the only thing that I was looking for... So I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been to an independent Baptist church before. So I thought I was going to see, you know, like men with beards and no moustache, no ring on their finger, ladies with all the head coverings and all the gear. And I thought, ah, oh, you know... Look, if they preach the word of God, I just, I just want to be somewhere where they preach the word of God. And, um, and that, was, that was my desire back then. And my desire is the same today. This is going to be last message. I'm going to be preaching here for probably a, well, probably a long time. I don't know when I'm going to be back here preaching again. So, ah, okay, I'll be right. All right. <laughs> So the topic that I had is pretty much the same topic that I started with here, and it's about the Bible. And uh, it's the same topic and the same verse that we're going to be using to underpin the church in Sunbury, and it'll be pretty much the same verse I'm going to be preaching on as the first sermon in Sunbury. So last sermon here, first sermon in Sunbury. And if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. It's only one verse that's the focus, but we'll read, we'll read from the first verse in chapter 15. The Lord says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbour for his good edification. For even Christ please not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, so much for the Word of God. Thank you, dear Lord, that we belong to a faithful church who loves the Word of God, trusts its word, trusts each and every word that's found in it, even in our English translation, dear Lord, that we believe and hold to. And I pray, dear Father, that you would be with us, dear Lord, as we go through this verse, dear Lord, taking it to our hearts, Father, that we would understand what you mean when you say that which was written aforetime, what its purpose is, that it was written for our learning, and that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The ultimate goal, dear Lord, that each one of us have within our lives, that which gives us peace and comfort and joy, is that hope that we have to look forward to. Pray, dear Lord, that you would be with this congregation. Give us a heart, dear Lord, to understand eyes that may see, ears that may hear, dear Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we give you thanks. Amen. Um, 
Bible was, it, it is the greatest book on earth. There is no other book that even comes close to the Bible. There is, um, it is it's the most written of book in all of history. No book has been written of more than the Bible itself. It's the most studied book in all history. Till today, it remains a perennial bestseller. It is still the most sold book in pretty much every country around the world. It doesn't make it on our bestseller lists, but it is definitely the most sold book. No book has had a greater impact on people's lives than the Bible. No book is more loved and no book is more hated. More blood has been spilt over the Bible than any other document. People have been killed for producing it, for circulating it, and even for reading it. You know instinctively that there's something unique about the Bible. Open up a volume like that on a train. Open it up on a tram. Open it up on a bus. And you can experience already something going on around you. Um, there's been plenty of times where people will actually talk to you. Some of them will scoff a little bit. Some of them will be with intrigue. You can open up any other book and you won't get the same reaction, but you do get that reaction with the Word of God. Carry it in the streets and see how people look at you. And you're carrying it in the streets. I remember I had a meeting that I had to have with someone in a, in a cafe in Sunbury and I was there with my Bible. There was a time that I was really uncomfortable even carrying it, you know. How strange that is. You know, I felt uncomfortable carrying my Bible. I felt self-conscious with my Bible. It doesn't bother me anymore. I walk into McDonald's and sit there and pull it open and I'm, and I'm fine and comfortable. Yet, even though the Bible is the most sold book in all history, and it's there every single year, this, in this day and age, it seems to be the least read amongst Christians, especially in the West. The text that we're looking at, that for whatsoever things are written aforetime, are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. It tells you that there's a benefit to the Word of God. There is something about the Word of God that is there for our learning, for our understanding. Without the Word of God, we would be completely blind to so many things. Before I was born again, before I was saved, I was completely ignorant to my state. I was completely ignorant that I was a damned sinner at that time. We've went through, we've gone through Romans chapter 1 right through to chapter 8. We've seen that Romans chapter 1 clearly identifying the ruin of man, the state of man, his fall from that which should be known by him about God to a, to a state of absolute and complete depravity. Not even able to discern what is right or what is wrong to seeing the plight of man in chapters 2 and 3. We recognise in those two chapters that this affects all of mankind all over the world. And there we had their plight. And then that incredible gospel 
being presented after the second half of chapter 3 through to chapter 5, culminating in that wonderful hope that we have being now justified by faith. And then we have this little bit of an explanation about the law and our current state in chapters 6 and 7, things that sort of bring us comfort because we recognise that we still struggle so much with sin. And then you have Paul's um, emphasis in chapter 7, that that which he wants to do, he does not do, but that which he does not want to do, that's what he finds himself doing. And we see what wretched people we are, but for Christ, you know, but for Christ. And then that wonderful high point in chapter 8. How can you not look at that and think that that is not a benefit for your learning? That is a benefit of your learning. It has taken you from death to life. And that's the miracle of the Bible. That's the miracle of the Word of God. And that's just eight chapters of one book. So it's so incredible to see that it's work. So we have the ruin of man, the plight of man, the redemption of man and the hope of man culminating in chapter 8. But let's look. We've got four points that I want to try and go through. And I'm going to give it to you ahead of time so you've got it and you don't miss it. The first one is that it is God who has written aforetime. It is God who has written aforetime. The second point is that it is God who uses words for our learning. It is God who uses words for our learning. The third point, it is God who is light and not darkness. We're going to be discovering how we read the Bible is vitally important. And it all comes down to the nature of God. And the fourth point is that it is the Word who encourages our hope. So our first point, it is God who has written aforetime. So have a look at the text there again. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. It's really important that we understand that it's God. Why? Because anything that has been written is written aforetime. Brethren, once you've put pen to paper and you've written a word, it's already passed. So everything that has been written has been written aforetime. Other people would look at this and they would consider, well, it's, you know, whatsoever things it says there. Whatsoever things were written aforetime. Could be any document. Could be any document. It doesn't really matter what it was as long as it was written in the past. But Paul narrows it down. He gives us the context in the second half of that verse. He says that... We, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And we know when the Bible refers to the Scriptures, it only refers to the Word of God. It only refers to the Word of God. It does not refer to the Hindu Gitas. It does not refer to uh, any other ancient document. It doesn't refer to a Elish. It doesn't refer to the Quran. It re- well, the Quran wasn't even there at that time. So it doesn't refer to any other book other than this. Now that's really important to know because there's one thing that we know about God is that His ways are higher than our ways. You'll notice the distinction that it is God's words, not man's. It's God's words, not man's. Now, when you first get into the study of the Word of God, you find yourself with a study Bible. Most people have a study Bible. And we find ourselves giving so much more credit to the people that have given the notes in the study Bible than the words of the text. 
We find ourselves doing that, and, and I did exactly the same thing. A lot of the times, I would actually read the notes before I read the text. What am I doing? Am I exegeting? Am I getting the information out of the text? Or am I eisegeting? Am I putting the information in that I got from somebody else? I'm eisegeting it. I'm doing it wrong. So I'm already reading it wrong. And there's many people that do that. We, we, we look at that. There's a, there's, whether we're looking at the traditional errors of the Roman Catholic Church or whether we're, we're, we're looking at it through the eyes of men like John Calvin or Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or Matthew Henry or John Bunyan, any of these individuals, if we hold the words of men up above the words of God, we have a problem. Men become the final authority of the Word of God, not the Word of God. Now, you're going to say, I don't do that. I hold the Bible up. Look, I've been part of a charismatic church for 11 years before I came here. And I can tell you one thing, 100%, there's not a single individual in that church that would ever say to me or to anybody else, no, 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 it's all got to be in line with the Bible. One problem is they don't know what the Bible says because they don't read it. Okay? And the other problem is that it's actually false because it, it, changes their, it will change their practice and what they do. So I don't believe anybody who are holding the, the Bible as a secondary authority would actually admit it. I don't think anybody would. I don't think anybody would. We like to think that we're actually holding the Bible as our primary authority. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55, located roughly in the middle of your Bible. If you hit the Psalms, turn right. It's past all the wisdom literature, so you'll go past Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and you'll hit Isaiah, roughly the middle of your Bible, looking at chapter 55, so towards the end of that book. You see, unless men have decided to forego the writings of all other men and trust in God at His Word and His Word alone... Believing and holding that he writes, and he writes clearly for us to understand, because that which was written aforetime was written for our learning, then we're always going to be holding the words of men above the words of God. Verse 6 from chapter 55 of Isaiah. This small passage here, it says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Have a look at this. We'll, go, we'll revert to this, bit, this next part uh, later on. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. You've still got your Bibles? Turn, turn back to Psalms, to the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 118. We're going to be looking at two particular verses in Psalm 118 that is vitally important. 
Now, a lot of people actually, you'll, some of you might recognise this. It's interesting, Psalm 118. It's actually jammed in between the shortest chapter in the Bible and the longest chapter in the Bible. Okay, Psalm 117, Psalm 119. It's also one that you'll see on the internet sometimes. People will say, this is the central verse in Scripture. And they'll pick one verse. There's a problem with that. Because the total number of verses in the Bible are equal. So you don't have a central verse. You have two. It has to be at least two. And it's generally understood that these are the two. Okay? So Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Yet, so many of us have the Bible in one hand and we have John MacArthur in the other hand. Yet it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. But we have the Bible in one hand, John Calvin in the other hand. Yet it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. We have the Bible in one hand and Charles Spurgeon in the other hand. But it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. The Bible in one hand, Matthew Henry in the other hand. Yet it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I hope that I've emphasised that enough. Now I know very few of you actually literally have that. But there's a problem, you see, because... If you have their writings before your eyes, then what you risk is that you have trusted their writings prior to trusting God's writings. And now, when you read the Scriptures, you're reading it with what is known as pre-understanding. Pre-understanding. Once you have pre-understanding, brethren, it is so difficult to get rid of it. Once you have a theological error planted within your mind, it is near impossible to get rid of it. Something has to happen. Something has to happen. There has to come a point where you say no more. God writes. It's his word. And if he has written it aforetime and that it's for our learning then it must be clear, because God is light, not darkness. And if it is clear, and he's given it to me to, to read, then I am able to understand it. No more other men. Set them aside. I had to make that decision. Do you know up until five years ago, I never read the Bible through? Never read the Bible through, not even once, five years ago. That might surprise you. I read plenty of the Bible, and I read plenty of books in the Bible, and when you put it all together, I probably did read it through, you know. There's no doubt that I would have read it through. But I never actually sat there reading it through cover to cover. Never did that. And then I found out that Charles Spurgeon read it through about a couple of hundred times, and, and George Whitefield read it through a couple of hundred times, and, and, and all these people reading it through so often, I thought, I've got a lot of catching up to do, you know. A lot of catching up to do. These were great men of God, you know, and the work that they did was an unbelievable work. And I thought, if I could, if I could work that work, but I need the Word, so I decided that I'm going to set aside every other book and I'm just going to concentrate on the Bible. And I found out that the Bible only takes 72 hours to read. 
So I did some rough calculations and I worked out, okay, if, if the Bible only takes 72 hours to read, that is if you can read it as fast as you speak, okay? If you can read it as fast as you speak, it's 72 hours long. Give it 80. I gave it 80. So I figured 80 hours, 365 days a week, I could read it three, four to five times a year, just reading an hour a day, an hour. Now, please don't tell me that you haven't sat down there reading a romance novel for at least an hour. And you've never actually sat down watching a flick for at least an hour? You know, some movie? So it's not impossible, is it? It's not impossible to find an hour a day to read the Bible. So I figured I'm going to read the Bible through every single day. I'm going to read at least an hour a day so I can get it through four to five times a year. That has been the biggest, most fundamental change in my life. I always trusted the Bible. I believed that it was the Word of God, but I never acted on that belief. I had faith that it was the Word of God, but I never acted on that faith. So my faith was what? Yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe. Head knowledge, no heart knowledge. So I committed myself to believing the Word of God is the Word of God, and if it is the Word of God, and I can learn, and I can change, that I can have hope, then you know what? I can instill that hope in others. Set aside the writings of other men. My mother-in-law used to, every time we had a dinner or lunch or something like that, my mother-in-law would always say to me, so Eddie, what book are you reading now? Now understand something, I never read a book up until I got married. Never read a book. When I got married, I was actually on my honeymoon, it was the first book I ever read. Right? <laughs> true, 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 true story. So that was the first book I ever read was on my honeymoon, I never stopped reading. So my mother-in-law would always ask me that question and I would always tell because I'd always have a range of stack of books sitting on my bedside table. And, uh, but at this particular time, I had nothing but the Bible and I just said, I'm just reading the Bible at the moment. So I spent about a year or so just reading the Word of God, just reading the Bible. And that's it. No other book. I didn't want any other interference. We hold the Word of God to be above the words of man. We trust in the Lord and put no confidence. Notice this. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. If it is better, then why put confidence in man? Stick to the word of God. So it's not unusual for zealous people to study the writings of other men. And the writings of other men are given for a purpose. And I'm not disparaging that completely. What I'm saying to you, and please hear me when I say this, I'm not saying disregard them completely. I'm saying the Bible is your final authority, not the writings of other men. They are to be checked against Scripture and Scripture alone. You need to do that consciously. See, Paul here is not referring to the writings of other men. He's not referring to them at all. He's referring to the Word of God. John Bunyan had a concern when, uh, when he was just new in the faith and he had certain individuals that were pressing at that particular time called Quakers. Well, they're also known as the Ranters, okay? They are sort of like a, like a... They came before our Charismatics came, right? They had certain emotional experiences and the like, and they didn't hold the Bible as the final authority. But he was humble enough to realise that he didn't know what was true. See, they were pressing very much within that society. And he didn't really know that was true. So he prayed, and he writes this in his autobiography known as um, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He went before the Lord and he said this. He said, Lord, I am a fool and not able to know the truth from error. 
Lord, leave me not to my own blindness, either to approve of or to condemn this doctrine. If it be of God, let me not despise it. If it be of the devil, let me not embrace it. That's a good prayer. You know what? The Lord honoured John Bunyan with that. If you've ever read his writings, you cannot leave those writings but be blessed. And read them in the original. Read them how he wrote them. Beautiful, beautiful writing. So the second point within this point is that distincts that it's God and not man is that his words are eternal. His words are eternal. Only God's words are promised to endure beyond time. My words, whatever I write, won't endure beyond time. John Calvin's words will not, will not last beyond time. Nor will Bunyan's, nor will Spurgeon's, nor will Matthew Henry, nor will all the other writings. Think about it. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. This is repeated again in 1 Peter. Wasn't it Jesus who was recorded in three different Gospels saying the same thing? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The Bible is certainly, we know, the most written about book in all of history. We know that. So are we to expect that when we get to heaven, there's going to be a library of books extending from the last three and a half thousand years together with the Word of God? Is that what we're going to see in heaven? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it's going to be only the Word of God because only the Word of God has been promised to endure beyond time. Beyond time. It'll be there for all eternity. Second point is that it is God who uses words for our learning. And this might seem really elementary and really self-evident, but it needs to be understood that that which was written aforetime had words as the vehicle through which meaning is transported. Words. Words were designed by the word to communicate. They were designed by the word to communicate. God is the one who is the author of language. He is the inventor of both our minds as well as the concepts for which our minds are motivated. And that is... Words. Words. Words carry meaning. It's that meaning that communicates between us all and it's that meaning that God has employed to communicate to us directly through the Bible. I can't overemphasize this enough. I really can't, especially in these days. There's no other form of communication on earth that has the same level of significance as words to motivate man. It's words that govern the people of a nation. It's words that will condemn unlawful action. It's words that determine the prosperity of nations through contracts and treaties and the like. It's words that bind us and it's words that make us free. It's words that send men to war. It's words that inspire victory. It's words that quicken a soul to life. It's words that quicken a soul to life. And friends, it's two small words with a combined number of letters being three that will commit you to a partner for life. It's words. It's words. 
Words carry real meaning in themselves. We think with words. Did you know that we think with words? A thought is, it's been known and understood that a paragraph is a complete thought. Wow, what does that say about you if you can't even put a paragraph together? Can't think. Now, I recognised that when I went to Italy for the first time and I found myself thinking in Italian. I was actually conscious that I was thinking in Italian. I thought, man, I'm thinking in Italian. I didn't know you used words to think. How about that? So, started thinking about words. We need to learn how to master words. Words are vitally important to master. There's a misquote by Benjamin Franklin. We use it in Australia almost all the time. You've heard it. Jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah? Or jack of all trades, a master of none. That's not what Benjamin Franklin said. He said that all men should be a jack of all trades, but a master of one. But a master of one. And friends, master words. Master words. We're living in the most deceptive time in history. Friends, if you will not master words, there may come a time where you will be mastered by those who have mastered words. Who have mastered words. And this deception is found in the beginning of the Bible itself. Satan used four words. Four words. The very first words that came out of his mouth was a question. And those very first words created doubt in the author of words. Yea, hath God said. Hath God said. So what happened to the one that was mastered by the words? Fell. We have the entire fall of mankind because of four deceptive words by one who has learnt from the word himself. Interesting, isn't it? So the word of God is vitally important and it's words that carry those meanings, brethren. And you have to know how to use them. Let me give you an example of how words should work, and, I'm, and I'll credit Professor Michael Bauman, credit Professor Michael Bauman, his lecture on the meaning of meaning, just in case I'm charged with plagiarising. So we've got a few anecdotes that are going to follow on, even into the next point that are his. It's a it's a great study. I probably I can't I can't tell you how often I've listened to it, but he tells a story about a lady by the name of Sue. She has it in her mind that she wants to write a book. And she, she, she's, thought about, she's thought about the letter R. And she thought, you know what? No one thinks about R enough. I'm going to write about the letter R. I want people to know about the letter R. Should I write a poetry? Should I write a, a, a historical uh, piece? Should I write a novel? She thought I'd write a novel. The Story of R by Sue. Sue's a clever girl. She knows how to use words. She knows that the words are really, really important. She knows exactly where to place them on the page as far as the sentence is concerned. She understands the structure of those words. She understands all the verbal cues and clues and she puts them on the page to make sure that the reader knows what she's saying about the letter R. And... She understands that. She understands what Mark Twain said. Mark Twain said the difference between the right word and almost the right word is the difference between lightning and a lightning bolt. Okay? So she spends her time selecting 
words, the right words. Sam ends up and he's, he goes through, he's going through Colin's bookseller at this, at this uh, time and he notices, he sees, the, he sees a book on the table there, the story of R. He goes, oh, I've heard of R. This could be good. So he picks up the book on the story of R and he goes home and he reads it. Now if Sam is a good reader, then he will pick up all the clues and cues that Sue has put in the book. That he will come to understanding. So, this is what's happened. Sue has thought about R. What is in her mind she desires to transpose into a book? Now, if he's reading it properly, what was in her mind that went into the book is going to end up in his mind. And communication occurs. Understand? Communication occurs. That's what communication occurs. That's how that happens. But say Sue's not a really good writer. Say she's not a really good writer. She desires to teach about R, but she's a bit sloppy because it's understood that sloppy thought makes sloppy language possible. And she, instead of writing about R, she ends up with fuzzy R. And let's say Sam's not a really good reader. And he reads fuzzy R, but he reads it according to how he's feeling at that particular moment in time. Does, he, does communication occur? Communication doesn't occur. Communication only occurs when the one who is the author, the writer, can write well. But it's also determined by the reader to, for them to be able to read well. Okay, really, really important. Just to give you another, another, another short um, story, actually, no, I won't, I won't go into that. Let's think, about, let's think about something for a second. You live in a world that was spoken into existence. Have you think about that? You live in a world that was spoken into existence. Do you think the author of words knows how to use words? Do you think the one who knows your mind, who's created it, who's framed it, knows how to give words that will put in, into your mind that you will be able to know and understand exactly what are in his mind? I think so. See, the disparagement is not with God. It's with us. And there's a right way of reading and there's a wrong way of reading. And we need to know what that right and wrong way is and we'll talk about that when I get into the next point. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's speaking about an active conforming work that the world is doing upon you to mould you and to shape you into its own image. But God is telling you to renew your mind. To renew your mind. He's the one that created your mind. He's obviously given us the tools to be able to renew it. Remember that portion in chapter 55 that we spoke about before? The last part of it in Isaiah. When it says, For the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater. So shall my word be, that goeth forth out of my mouth. It will not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. How interesting is that? Did you, did you notice that? Did you pick that up? That the word of God is likened to rain. The rain comes down and nourishes the earth. It brings forth food. Food to the lambs, food to the cow, food, and it makes everything work. 
And we understand that even scientifically. We know that we are in a 100% hydro, 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 I don't know the word. Hydraulic, hydrocycle. Anyway, water cycle, right? <laughs> we don't lose water. We don't lose water. Water doesn't disappear. It evaporates, it goes back up, and then it comes down from where it came from. And the Word of God is meant to be exactly the same. There's a miraculous property within water. There is the same miraculous property within the Word of God. It does exactly what God has sent it forth to do. So if it does, read it. Read it. There's not much point having your water in a vessel with a plant dying in front of you, is it? Not much point. What are we supposed to be doing? pour the water. Read the Word. Read the Bible. Let God's Word do its work within your life. Third point. This is the longest point of the, of the, of the message, but I, I need to get this through, and that is that God, it is God who is light and not darkness. It's that which gives us patience and comfort. Okay, For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have Hope. Is God vague in his communication? Is he vague? Is God light or darkness? I mentioned to you that Satan continues to employ his original tactic, and he does. He hasn't changed his method. His primary purpose is to create doubt in the word of God. He's never changed. It still happens today. We have the confusion of Bible versions is just one element of it. All right? But on top of that, he's done something else through educational history from the time of, well, really a lot of the early church, from basically the time of origin right up until today. Two things have happened. Number one is we have the postmodern age, right? The modern age. Rationalism is gone. The search for truth is gone. Now it's whatever's true for you is true, okay? We have this relativistic idea. Everything now has become subjective. It's all based on what you personally think. Okay, and that's changed how we read. There were, there were a few things that I spoke about before that I need to re-emphasise. Remember that it is God's words, not man's words. It's his ways that are higher than our ways. That we are to put confidence in God, not man. That his words are eternal and none of man word, man's words are. That God uses words to communicate. The words carry meaning. And the choice of right words communicate the meaning to our minds. And that God knows how to use words Perfectly, and then I alluded to Satan. When I was um, when I was in uh, the church before, I remember going to a, talking to, to somebody about the Word of God, and we're having a bit of an argument or a debate, and he basically said to me, "You know what? You know, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say. You can make the Bible say anything that you want." He's alluding to a type of interpretation. There's three. Three types of interpretation worth writing down because you need to be able to pick them. One of them is true. The other two are absolutely false and dangerous. The first one, literal interpretation. In other words, meaning equals author intention. Make sense? Meaning equals author intention. The second one, subjective interpretation. Meaning equals interpretation. However I want to interpret it, I interpret it. Right? Meaning equals Basically, it's like a private interpretation. Meaning equals interpretation. The third one is allegorical interpretation. And that is meaning equals scholastic or governing interpretation. And I'll explain 
why there's that distinction. But it's still meaning equals interpretation. All right? I don't want to get too deep with you here, but if you don't have these ones down pat and understand them, you're going to end up in all sorts of error. So, and, I, and, I, and there's no way known that I'm going to be able to bring all of this out in half of a message this morning. First one, subjective interpretation. I'm not going to talk about the literal one. That one is going to be self-evident that it's the right method of interpretation of anything. Okay? You can make the Bible say anything you want. It was alluding to subjective interpretation. Subjective interpretation is that method that has the Bible bend its knee to our personal preferences. It's what the Bible means is up to me. It's up to me. Have you done that? Have you ever gone to a Bible study and the person that's leading the Bible study says to you, Hey, Sally, um, what does this verse mean to you? What does this verse mean to you? Now, Sally doesn't have the temerity to sit there and think, Well, what does it matter what it means to me? The question is, what does it matter to God? Not what it means to me. What does it mean is what it means, not what it means to me. No, she doesn't do that. What does she do? She answers the question. Doesn't she? She answers the question. Oh, to me the Bible means... But it doesn't really matter what it means to you. It means what it means. There's a teacher by the name of Morris Kelly who taught English at Princeton University in the 1950s and 60s. He was a Miltonist, the leading Miltonist of his day. Uh, he, he studied the works of John Milton. And he used to teach a lot of that. Anyway, he, he, went, to, uh, he went to England at that particular time and he went to a museum there that has the some of the original works of John Milton in its casement there and he wanted to see them and anyway the museum was about to close and he left the museum and within a couple of minutes of leaving the, leaving the museum it began to rain it rains in London and just at that time he realised he didn't have his umbrella he believes he might have forgotten it in the museum but he couldn't go back to the museum now because they're closed anyway as he's walking along with his hand in his pockets looking for his apartment he um he comes across a shop and the shop sign says umbrellas recovered and he goes ha cool maybe they can help me recover mine and then he thought to himself oh no no recovered doesn't mean retrieved it means recover. Oh. And you know what? You know what? No matter how bad he wanted it to mean retrieve, it didn't. <laughs> didn't. Why? Because the meaning of that sign is not up to him. It's up to the man who put it up there. Isn't it? It's the problem with subjective or subjective interpretation of a biblical text. It means what it means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Make sense? Okay. There's a fantastic problem with respect to subjective interpretation of any text. Another short anecdote. Let me tell you about something historical. In 1973, Supreme Court Justice Harry, uh, Justice Harry Blackman in the 1973 landmark ruling on Roe v. Wade, legalised abortion in all 50 states in the United States. Okay? He interpreted the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to include what is referred to as penumbral rights. 
Uh, penumbral rights are basically rights that are sort of there by implication, or they're sort of inferred. The problem is with penumbral rights is that they are speculative at best. Okay? Anyway, in these shadowy penumbral rights, he interpreted a right to privacy in the Constitution. In that right to privacy, he interpreted the right of a woman to terminate her baby in the first two trimesters and in the third trimester if her life was in danger. Okay? So, you can read the Constitution, I understand, a hundred times a day for the next hundred years and you will find nothing about the right to privacy or the right to abortion. Nothing. But because meaning was interpretation in his mind, 50 million people are dead because meaning equals interpretation. 2015, 554,000 children were aborted in the United States alone. That's pretty massive. Why? Because meaning is interpretation. Confucius said something interesting. He says, when... when we lose our words when, when words lose their meaning, people lose their lives. Words have lost their meaning in so many ways because of this type of interpretation. It's dangerous. The next one is allegorical in interpretation. It's also known as spiritualising the text. All right? It's the most common manner of interpretation since the first few centuries. And it's most common amongst the larger church body, the Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, and it became what the, the Reformers, the, 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 the Protestant Church, or the Greater Protestant Church. The vast majority of them use allegorical interpretation, not in the entire Bible, but on a large part of it. Okay? It's the interpretation that focuses its diversity mostly on that relating to last things. Okay? So in the Protestant denomination, you'll find that vast majority of it has to do with the last days. And it has... You'll recognise one of the greatest um, things that they use with regards to it is what's known as replacement theology. That's the idea that because the Jews had rejected their Messiah, therefore all the promises that pertain to the Jews are now replaced and put onto the church. That's the general belief. Okay? What's really interesting about that is that the Bible talks about the entire world coming against Israel. It says that literally. Not allegorically, it says it literally. What do we see today? We see the entire world slowly withdrawing their support for Israel. Slowly condemning Israel for all these atrocities. It's what you see on the news all the time. And it's what will ultimately lead to the death of two-thirds of the Israelite people okay, during the tribulation. What is allegorical interpretation? Bernard Ram, he's a Protestant, uh, biblical interpretation is his book. And he says, allegorism is the method of interpreting a literary text that regards the literary sense as the vehicle for a secondary, more spiritual and more profound sense. Okay? So he is a, he's a Protestant theologian. So he holds allegorising a text as lower or higher than the primary text holds it higher, right? He holds it higher. He's a, he's, and so that's why he says it's more spiritual and more profound. Another gentleman by the name of Charles Fritz in his work Biblical Typology, he confirmed this view 
But he adds a motivation. Have a listen to this. He says, according to this method, the literal and historical sense of Scripture is completely ignored. And every word and event is made an allegory of some kind, either to escape theological difficulties or to maintain certain particular religious views. Dwight Pentecost, in his book, Things to Come, it's a great book, if you've, if you've never read it, that's an awesome book. A little bit big, but it's an awesome book. He logically concludes a severe problem in the method, right? He says this. He says, if this method, uh, the allegorical one, is uh, the historical, hang on, in this method, the historical import is either denied or ignored and the emphasis is placed entirely on a secondary sense so that the original words or events have little or no significance. Little or no significance. Milton Terry, he said that it'll be noticed that at once its habit is to disregard the common signification of words and give wing to all manner of fanciful speculation. He says it does not draw out the legitimate meaning of an author's language, but foists into it whatever the whim or fancy an interpreter may desire. We spoke earlier about the importance of words and about how words are used, that words themselves carry their own meaning. But under the allegorical idea, those words lose their meaning. They will lose their meaning. Then let me ask you, what happens to you now? Imagine, just think for a second that allegorical interpretations are correct. Think for a second if that's true. Does it mean what it says? Does the word of God then mean what it says? Well, if the words have lost their meaning, it can't mean what it says, can it? It has to mean something else. And this is the very reason why we find within our churches today, and so many churches today, alterations of those words. And that word doesn't really mean that. It actually means this. Well, there's an allegorical picture of that. It actually means this. That's what it's actually saying. The authority of the Scripture then passes from who? From the Scripture back to who? Man. Goes straight back to man. You're stuck again. How are you going to now learn that which was written aforetime? How can you? How can you learn that which was written aforetime if you haven't got a clue what it says? Now, I'm not the only one that comes up with this, um, with this end. F.W. Farrar, in his book titled The History of Interpretation, concludes this. He says, When once the principle of allegory is admitted, when once we start with the rule that whole passages... And books of scripture say one thing when they mean another. The reader is delivered, bound, hand and foot to the caprice of the interpreter. That's what happens. That's what happens. The same writer goes on to conclude, it can be absolutely sure of nothing, that men could be absolutely sure of nothing except what is dictated to him by the church. Did you get that? Roman Catholicism is a fantastic picture of that. You cannot know the truth other than what the church tells you the Bible means. But you know, Pastor Frank, myself, David, Brother Alan, all who stand up here and preach, we are bound hand and foot to your understanding of the Scriptures. We are accountable to you and to the Word of God. 
Our accountability is in the Word of God. We say the Word of God means what it says and says what it means. Guess what that means? It means that I can be checked by you. See, this is why Paul spoke about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 11. He spoke about them. He says that they were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they searched the Scriptures to see if those things were true. Who was he saying that they were checking? Him. The Apostle Paul was standing there willing to be checked by the people that he was preaching to. But you see, if I want to teach you something different, if I want to tell you something the Bible doesn't say, I need a, I need a tool. I need some sort of a tool. You know what's incredible about this? We don't do this to any other text we read. We don't do this when we read the newspaper. We don't do this when we sign a contract. We don't do this when we have a conversation with one another. We don't do this when we write an email or a letter. We don't do this in life at all. We never allegorise what we read. We never allegorise in our communication. We just don't do this in real life. Why? Because it doesn't work. You've got no communication happening. God cannot communicate to you if he has to go through a man to do it. You have the word of God. The greatest, greatest success within the church was that the people were given the scriptures. But what's happening now? Scriptures are being taken away from us. Oh, I've got a copy of it. But because I don't really know how to read it, I don't use it. Might as well not have it. A young girl, hearing her pastor use one of these methods, simply asked her mother, Mummy, if God did not mean what he said, why didn't he just say what he meant? <laughs> Seriously, out of the mouth of babes. Does it not make sense? Why didn't he just say what he meant? Make, take a note of this verse. It's in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Just make a note of it. He says, To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. God is not darkness, but light. His children are children of light. The word of God is the light of the world. Who is the word of God? Brings me to my last point. Fairly short. Last point is that it is the word who encourages our hope. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. The Lord has given us the Bible. Not only that we may know of our ruinous state, not only that we may know of the salvation that He has wrought for us, not only that we may know how we are to live, but also that we would be comforted by them in the days to come within our lives. Today is not a day that will ever occur again. It's not a day that will come about again. But it is today that he desires we would have hope. Tomorrow is not a day filled with unknown terrors that most people feel. Because... Tomorrow has Jesus in it. Tomorrow has Jesus in it. And it's for those who are His. If you're saved by His blood, then tomorrow is filled with comfort, joy, peace and hope. 
But the knowledge of this is revealed only in his words. Those he speaks so clearly to us. If it were not so, he would have told us. Hope's lacking in the lives of so many people today. Yet in his words are found words of eternal life. Um, It's they that testify of Jesus Christ. His name is a name above all names. He is our comforter. He is our redeemer. He is the bread of life. The one we partake of every day. He is our joy and our hope. He is the light of our lives. He is the light of our lives. Jesus died that we might live. His words are a comfort. And they are our peace. They are clear. They are not vague. They are words from everlasting. They will remain for all eternity. They are without error and they are preserved as promised to this day. God has never been limited by language, brethren. Never been limited by language. He created it. So holding an English Bible in your hands, understand that you hold the very preserved words of God. Every word that you have, if you have a King James Bible, every word that you have is the very words of God, the very perfect word of God, as he promised. Uh, I can't hope to go into why it's that version. That's a study that you can do. It was that which was written aforetime. It's God who was written aforetime. It's God who uses words for our learning. It's God who is light and not darkness. And it is the word who encourages our hope. Who is the word of God? It's given to us in 1 John 5, 7. It says that there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The Bible is the most important book in your life. You can't, can't leave it closed. Guys, you can't. The hope of the world depends on you reading that book and growing and being changed and believing that God has something to say to you. He has something to say to you. And it's in that book. Know how to read it. You have the book. Learn how to read it. Just trust him at his word, that he will grow you through it. You're going to read the same passage today and tomorrow you're going to read it again and you're going to pick up something. You know, you may read Job and think this is such a confusing book. You know what? The second time around, the third time around, it's going to become a favourite. It did me. Don't ask me how. I'm still waiting for Leviticus to actually have that promise, but still struggling with that one. But read it, read it, read it, read it over and over and over and over. Don't stop reading the Bible. Make it a daily habit. But you first have to believe he has something to say. And then he writes clearly. If you don't believe that, the book's going to stay shut. No one's going to grow. Not even the people that are closest to you. Not your children, not your parents. No one will. Let's pray. Father, Father, we know, dear Lord, that you speak, dear Father, with such clarity. Just as you spoke, dear Lord, to your people, Israel, in Exodus 20, when you gave them the commandments, you gave them the law, you gave them the Lord clearly from the mount. They heard your words, they heard your voice. 
And so, dear Father, we have your words. We have your words printed in Scripture. We have your voice and your spirit within our lives. And I pray, dear Father, that you would help us recognise this as a truth, that we may employ the word of God within our lives, that we might change, and that we might make some effect within this world. I ask you, dear Father, you would encourage us in that hope that you so well promised from all that was written aforetime for our learning. We thank you and give you praise in Jesus' glorious and most wonderful and precious name. Amen.